Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Lord, we ask the blessing of Your Spirit on Your Word to teach us, to give us insight and understanding. We simply ask, we simply come, and we thank You we have Your Spirit to rely on to open the depths and the beauty and the riches and the treasures of Your Word to us. We invite you to do so. We ask you to do so now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of two key verses I've shared with you for Paul's letter to the church at Colossae is Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, which I read to you again, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. It was William Carey, that uh, famous cobbler turned missionary to India, who once famously said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That is the stuff oftentimes of our teaching, our preaching, our study of the Word of God, great things. For this, this book is filled with great things. And history has been littered with great things of great people in the great name of our great God. But there's another side to all of this. And perhaps you're the person who from time to time you hear all these great things and you just don't feel great. Isaiah 40 verse 31 reads, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. And they will walk and not become weary. And the truth is, some do fly. Some do run. But more often than not, we just walk. That's a little more typical of, at least of my life. I would assume it is of yours as well. Friday night, I had the pleasure again of talking with our group at Connect. Our 20-somethings gathering, and uh, that's just a great group of people. I love to worship with them and talk to them and hear from them and, and to spend time with them. And we talked about how, specifically this verse, Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And we talked about the walk of faith and how God called us to walk. And we went all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3. And then Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God took him. That's great. And Noah, who walked with God and built the ark and saved the world. And on down through history, you see these people walking with God and yet doing great things. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jesus. We looked at him walking throughout his ministry and all the times when I would be rushing, when I would be flailing, that Jesus just walked. And in discussing these things at Connect, I share with them that according to sociologists Neil Howe and William Strauss, the millennial generation, and they're all sick of being called millennials, that generation was supposed to be the hero archetype. It was supposed to be the the generation of heroes. The socially minded, the ones who are going to make the great change. And that's yet to be seen. They may. And I was, I was telling our millennial group that I wasn't talking to any of them individually because in any generation there are the heroes, there are the ones who fly, there are the ones who run. But the vast majority of people in every generation walk. We're just about the walk of life. I mean, heroes and glory and flying and running, hey, these thrill the common cobblers among us. William Carey, I mean, he got into mission work because his favorite book was the Bible and the journals of Captain Cook. And he was an adventurer at heart. 
And sometimes that gets stirred within us. But gang, when it comes to glory, in the Christ-centered life, and that's what we're really talking about here, the Christ-centered, Christocentric life, when it comes to glory, when it comes to flying, when it comes to the great things, listen, glory is more often hoped for and more often hidden. In fact, Paul wrote as much, Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Not the instant glory. He said in Colossians 3 verse 3, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. The hope of glory, the hidden glory, not the instant glory. And as I shared on Friday night, we don't have really such a thing as instant heroes. Heroes tend to be born out over a long period of time of endurance and long-suffering and patience and yes, walking. That teaching from Wednesday night or Friday night on walking is, by the way, it's on the website. It's kind of a, a little bonus teaching in Colossians if you just can't get enough. <laughs> but to be known by Christ, I think of the old hymn that says, When by His grace I shall look on His face, that will be glory to me. That's all the glory I'm looking for. But I want to offer a common truth this morning. For all those who would fly and for all those who would run and for all those who would do great and glorious things, who would attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, the common life is where it counts. The common life is where it really counts. Interesting, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And then he goes on and says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And then he goes on to talk about the glorious rapture. I thought that was so interesting. I focus so often on the rapture verses of 1 Thessalonians 4 that I have missed the fact that right before that he's talking about a quiet life. Not a life of running, not a life of shouting, not a life of glory and greatness, but just the quiet life. The glory will come. The hope of glory. The hiddenness of the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. But for now, the common life is where it counts. And don't think yourself not walking the walk simply because day to day, it's not that exciting. It most often isn't. Day to day is usually just that, day to day. Common, average. Here in the latter half of this Christ-centered, Christ in you, Christ who is your life letter to the Colossians, The teaching of Paul is surprisingly as common as the toothbrush in the jar. As the towel on the rack, the comb in the drawer, the cereal in the bowl. This teaching is one pant leg at a time. It's lacing up your shoes, grabbing the keys, starting the motor, practicality. It is as plain as the nose on your face that you blows every day. It is common teaching for the common life. I love sections like this that are so practical. We talked about on Wednesday night. It's, it's about what you do. It's simply about how you live in the common everyday life. Put off the old hand-me-downs. Put on the new wardrobe in Christ Jesus. Put up with those around you. It's that simple. Paul writes in Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, which is huge, Holy and beloved, which is fantastic, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the unifying bond of perfection. That's the little literal translation there. 
And as you Bible students know, Paul then really drills us. Because going on in this chapter, he talks about how it's not about putting on a show. It's not about putting on a spectacle or putting on the Ritz. It's about putting up with others in the most common place you can imagine. And that is right at home. Down in verse 18, he says, wives submit. That's every day. Husbands, verse 19, love. That's a daily decision. Children, verse 20, obey. Fathers, don't provoke. And he even deals with house slaves, that is, house servants. He's talking about everyone right there at home. Remember, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We talked about Wednesday, how for the wife who struggles to submit to the husband, you're not submitting to the husband, you're submitting to Jesus. You're serving Christ. Which is why you serve Him. Husband, you love your wives regardless of how they respond because you're serving Christ. Children, you obey your parents not because they're always right, but because you obey Christ. And when He is the focal point, when my life truly is centered on Him, then all of a sudden, the common life gets impacted. And I think perhaps rather than chasing the glory on earth, we need to more focus on the fact that He is the glorious Christ. That we focus our hearts and our minds and our bodies on Him. Our day-to-day common life. Because guess what? Most of us are commoners. We just are. Moving about in this world. Proverbs 22 verse 2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. There is one who has the glory, and then there's the rest of us. How do I live as a commoner? With, with Christ in me. I would suggest that you reside in Colossians chapter 3 for a while. If you're finding the practicality of faith difficult, or something beyond you, you look at the William Careys, or the great missionaries, or the great teachers, or the great uh, leaders of, of the Christian church, and you think, that's, that's just, that's not gonna ever be me. Fine, good, better. Reside here for a bit in Colossians 3. Unpack these truths. Practice them. Colossians 3 is what I would call divine inspiration for the daily situation. It's just every day. Now, something struck me in studying through this and reading through the passage, that there's a subtle shift that takes place right in the middle between about verses 12 and the end of the chapter. All of this practicality, all of this simplicity, but there's a a shift in the syntax. We wouldn't see it. You know, when we're, it's lost in translation when we go from the Greek to the English. We don't see the syntax change. We just see the English and read on and, and consider it all kind of a lump theme. But this change, this grammatical arrangement is significant in how I believe we are to take this passage. Verses 12 through 14, which we just read a moment ago, is all in the second person plural imperatives. Second person plural. So he's talking to the whole church at Colossae. Remember that, he's talking to the church as much as to the individual. We like to take these things individually, but he really is talking to the whole church at large. But it's imperative, put on, bear with, forgive, love, do these things. These are the things that you can practice. These are the things the Apostle says, do. But while we're doing these things, something is being done to us. And that's where the change is in verses 15 through 17. Suddenly it goes from second person plural imperatives to third person plural passive imperatives. Passive? The verbs are still imperatives. But rather than me acting... We are being called upon to be acted upon. Okay, I am to have compassion and show kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That's that's me acting. But then suddenly, we are now being acted upon. While we clothe ourselves, while we put on these character traits of Christ in our own decision and by our action, we are also to accept, to receive clothing of a broader kind. Uniforms, if you will, that are put on to us 
to be worn by all of us. Look at verse 15 again at the very beginning. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it happen. He doesn't say force the the, the, the peace of Christ upon you. Do the peace. He says let the peace of Christ rule. First thing to jot down this morning of just about three things in this passage is the ruling peace of Christ. The ruling peace of Christ. This is something that is now put on us. While we choose to put on these other things, this is put on us with great practicality, the ruling peace of Christ. Now, that makes sense. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I I jive with that phrase, the peace of Christ. Hey, he's called the Prince of Peace, right? That's one of his titles. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 tells us there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. After being told that he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, there's going to be no end to his government. The word government in the Hebrew there is also rule. There will be no end to the rule of his peace. So what Paul is writing here, and again it's a shift from the things that I do, now what he's saying is, allow the mantle of the peace of the rule, the ruling peace of Christ, to be draped upon your shoulders. Allow this to be. Allow this to come. When Paul wrote this in the first century, the peace that was understood, we've talked about before, the closest peace there was governmentally was the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. And it was effective peace, but it was oppressive peace. It was comprehensive, but it was also imposing. And then this humble rabbi from Galilee comes along and says, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The ruling peace of Christ. Not oppressive, not heavy, not weighty, not demanding, not imposing. The ruling peace of Christ. And you know what? I can't force it to come. I can't make it happen. Nor will Jesus force it upon us. But we can allow it to be laid upon us. We can invite it into this place. Jesus doesn't impose His peace on anyone, but He offers it to everyone who would accept, get this, the full governing authority of it. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, when you talk about the peace of Christ, the peace of God, there are a couple of different kinds of of peace that are talked about in the New Testament. Two shaloms. You know, Isaiah 26.2 refers to the, the perfect peace, the shalom, shalom. And truly, there are two shaloms that we have with God. Go back and look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. This is the first shalom, the first peace, and it's a personal peace. It's peace with God, peace that He makes for us. Verse 19 of chapter 1, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Bible students, remember, God doesn't need to make peace with you. You need to make peace with Him. It's not His responsibility to make it right with you. And sometimes we flip that around and we live that way. Oh, you know, until God proves this to me, We're kind of Thomas. Until I see the holes in his hands, until he proves himself to me, I'm not going to listen. God doesn't need to prove yourself to him. We need to prove ourselves to him. Righteous and holy and perfect. And we are not, but he is. And so he made the way that there might be peace between us. He did it through the cross. And that's the first kind of peace, and it's the peace that goes out to every believer. It's my personal peace with God. And you know it has nothing to do with any of y'all. It's just me and God. It's what He did and what I receive, and I have 
peace with God. But there's a second peace that the Scriptures talk about. The ruling peace of Christ. And the ruling peace of Christ is not so much vertical as it is horizontal. Because it affects us all and it involves us all. Why is it called the ruling peace? Why are we to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Our hearts, collectively, plural. Because it's a peace that governs in and among the commons. It's a peace between us and among us and in us and through us all together. I like that phrase, the commons. It's, it's a university phrase. Colleges, they'll refer to sometimes their cafeterias or their student unions. They'll, they'll refer to them as the commons. It comes from the, the old Latin communis, which was also then translated into the ancient French or the, or the old English, old French, and then on into the old English. And this concept of the commons, the commons, it, it means a, a common meeting place. It's, a, it's an area designated, a location, a hall, a structure, the commons where all the people could gather together in common. Notice what he said in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in what? One body. He is not talking to a person. He's talking to persons. He is talking to the church. He's talking about the peace of Christ that is collective and common and for all. And as we allow that peace, as we receive that ruling peace in our hearts, among us as one body, he says, and be thankful. Are you thankful to be called into one body? Are you thankful for the church? I am. But I've also been hurt by the church. Are you thankful for the church? Well, I'm here. Give what I had you to be here. I'm here, but my guard is up. Because in the last commons I attended, it didn't go so well. You know, it it, it truly is remarkable. And and I I think it, it pains our father how many of his children have been hurt by his children. And how many people can point to at least some point in their life where there is an old church wound. And and sadly, what the enemy does with that is we take those church wounds and we hold them up and say, that's the problem with the church. Instead of recognizing that we are the church, and I'm the problem with the church. It's my imperfection, it's my sin nature that brings about the problems. And some of you are like, amen. We are called to peace in the commons as one body and to be thankful that we are that one body. One collection of people living in the commons where our common rule is the peace of Christ and not the striving of man. Our common rule is the peace of Christ and not the imposed authority of man. And if we were all able to simply receive that peace, that ruling peace... We would love the common life. And Paul is talking about that. Christ in the common life, but even more so Christ in the commons. Common everyday Christianity. Colossians 3.11, I love this phrase. He says, Christ is all and in all. He is the governing factor. He is the ruler and His rule is peace. The peaceful ruler whose rule is peace. That's what Jesus is about. And where there is peace between brothers and sisters, Jesus is right there. And where there is conflict, we are denying His rule. The word rule is an interesting word. I think some of you, especially John Linus, should be able to really relate to it. The the word is brabuo, and literally it means umpire. John is my resident baseball fan. It's Jesus in black and white. The umpire of the game. He's not in the dugout. He's at home base and he is calling the ball. And his eyes are on the game. He is on the line calling the plays, watching the base runs, watching all the plays. He is the one who makes the rules and he maintains the order in the commons on the field. That's a strike, we cry. And the umpire says, I'm going to let him walk. Runners out, we proclaim. And he says, I'm going to call him safe. 
And if there's a dust-up on the field, he goes right out into the middle of it, breaking it up. He is the umpire of peace. Let the umpire of let the peace of Christ umpire your hearts. And that's who he is, and it's a great picture. Do we accept that authority? Do we recognize that in the game, quote unquote, that he's the one in charge, or do we kick dirt on his shoes? Do we get off all up in his face and tell him how wrong his calls are? Hey, he sees the whole field. He knows every player. And it's no game to Jesus. It's common life. And where there are contentions and conflicts, again, our first efforts, if we are to be Christ-like and Christ-centered, our first efforts must be for peace. The peace of Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What if he nails me with a wild pitch? Be at peace. What if she unfairly charges my base? Be at peace. Let the peace of Christ rule. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Remember, this peace is third person passive imperative. It's imperative for us to function as a body, but it's passive because we accept it. We cannot force it. We can practice it, but we call on Jesus for it. What does that mean practically? It means the moment that you find yourself in conflict, especially with another believer, you are on your knees in prayer asking for peace. You are calling upon the umpire to enter the fray and to make peace. You're not hiding in the dugout, you know, spitting out the chaw and angry at what's going on. You're on your knees before the umpire saying, would you make peace between us? You know, it is really hard to be angry with someone you're praying for. It's really hard to stay in conflict and strife with someone that you are seeking to have peace with. Oh, they don't deserve it. Do you? Do I deserve peace with God blood-bought by Jesus on the cross? Pray for peace. That is the rule that He has given us. Now, we got to be a little careful with this concept of peace because I've heard it used incorrectly. It's not something that, that we force, nor is it something that justifies wrong behavior. What do you mean? Well, I'm doing this, and you're telling me that it's not right biblically, but I have a peace about it. I just have a peace about it. And I have been one to say that where there is peace, it is likely that Jesus is in it. But peace can be false too. Let me give you an example of that. Two men. Two men who had two identical presentations of peace as they both were going through two different storms, but one peace was a false peace. The first of these two men was a minor prophet with a major problem. His name is Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, You can turn there or just listen to the story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. By the way, why was God sending Jonah to Nineveh? To wipe it out? No, to make peace. I want you to go and give them a chance to repent. But they're wicked, Lord! They're stealing bases right and left! Go make peace, Jonah. But Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish, or to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You need to understand that he went down out of the midst of Judea, down to Joppa, booked passage on a ship, and sailed directly west to Tarshish. Nineveh was due east. You couldn't possibly go further out of your way than Jonah was going out of his way to get away from the Lord. But it's cool, he had a piece about it. He did. Self-righteous peace. I'm not going there. 
If I go there and they start repenting and the Ninevites get saved, well, that's the pagans are getting saved. Hallelujah. I'm not doing that. I serve the righteous people. So off he goes. And we're told in Jonah 1 verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. How is that even possible? The ship's about to capsize and he's snoozing away, totally at peace. In absolute rebellion to God. Well, I've got a peace. I've got a peace about this. Now, perhaps Jonah's peace was just the, the weight of God's call on him wore him out. Because he was fighting so hard against it, as Paul was at one time, kicking against the goats. Jonah certainly was kicking, so maybe he was just exhausted. But I'll tell you what, it is possible to have a false peace... And in Jonah's case, he, I think he slept fitfully, uh, worn out, in the stress of fleeing the ruling peace of Christ. But there he is asleep in the boat. And then we come to the other man, who is the ruling umpire of peace. Mark 4.37, there arose a fierce gale of wind. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Another boat on another sea. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? One man at peace in the hold as the ship is going down. By the way, when they woke him up and brought him out, the only way to calm things down was to chuck him overboard. The other man asleep in the stern as the the storm raged on and they called upon him and he came out and said, Hush, Prince of Peace. It is possible to have a false peace. So how do I know if I've got a a true peace, a genuine peace? I mean, two men, two kinds of peace. One based on false relief or a false escape, and the other an authoritative peace that comes by faith. How do I know? I don't want to have a false peace. How can I be sure? Well, this is the third time in so many weeks that I've come back to this verse just seems to be overlaying in our conversations for whatever reason. Isaiah 26, verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. What? Whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth thee. How do I stay my common mind on Christ? Well, you let the ruling peace of Christ rule among you. And secondly, the residing word of Christ. The ruling peace of Christ and the residing Word of Christ. How do I know that I have the peace of Christ? By the residing Word of Christ. Verse 16, let, allow. Again, this is passive. It happens to you if you would receive it. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. I hear all the time, and not from a few millennials, no offense, But I hear a lot about this. Well, I've just got a peace about this. Oh man, I was in that place and I just felt so much peace and the place was not good. And the place was incorrect. And the teaching was false. Oh, but I had peace. Okay, listen. You know it's real peace when the Word of Christ is residing within you. The Word of Christ. We keep coming back again and again to that as well. Paul does. By the way, he says the Word of Christ here. And it is the, the uh, Logos Ho Christos. So it is the word of Christ. It's the Logos. And it's a very rare use of the word the Logos. 
Oh, not the word itself. That word is used all over the the New Testament. The logos is used everywhere. The phrase word of God, you would see throughout the New Testament. But the phrase, the word of Christ, the logos ho Christos, is very rare. It's only used here and in one other place. The word of Christ in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, literally the elementary logos ho Christos, let us press on to maturity. He's not saying leave the word of Christ, but rather build higher. Go deeper. Know more. Seek and pursue more of Christ than what you previously knew. Grow in that relationship. The word of Christ, the Logos Ho Christos, and here Paul says, allow it to richly dwell within you. Richly dwell? It it describes a generous, permanent residency. This is not the house guest who comes up and eats all your food. This is the one who comes in to dwell and begins to supply you beyond your imagination. He's generous. He's continual. He's giving. He is here for good and He's here to stay. The Word of Christ richly dwelling. And you know, you don't have someone dwelling in your house without bumping into them every common day. You have visitors. You have guests come in. My mom is of the mind that four to seven days is really the max that you should ever have a guest because beyond that, they stop being a guest and they start to be a pest. (laughs) But if the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within me, not only is there provision and sustenance and, and offering that keeps coming constantly, but I'm running into Him. I'm bumping into Him. I come up the stairs, there He is. I go into the kitchen, He's there. I put my feet up by the fireplace, there He is. Richly dwelling within me. Constantly. Job 23 verse 12. Job said, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How much more, even than the word of Christ, the Logos, Ho Christos, is the Christ himself In John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael got it. He's all over our scriptures, he says. Luke 24.27, remember after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, we're told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Hang on, you're going to hear something you've heard a lot here. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me, Jesus says. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Then I said, Jesus speaking, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Yeah, yeah, Rick, you always quote those verses. I know, right? I do. I intend to. And I'll tell you what, as soon as we are forced to add more services on Sundays and more teaching nights through the week to meet the high demand for the Lagos Ho Christos, maybe I'll cool the jets a bit. Probably not. Not until every last person within our common reach has heard the Word of Christ. Until then, we will keep proclaiming Christ in the Scriptures. We will keep proclaiming Jesus in the Word of God. And you need to ask yourself, even as we consider this as a body, because remember, He's talking to the commons. He's talking to all of us. Do you treasure the rich, generous residency of the Logos Ho Christos in your life? Do you treasure the Word of Christ? Do you pour over the Word of Christ? Is it on the nightstand before you sleep? Is it there when you wake? Is it in the sack at lunch? Is it with you where you go? Are you pondering and meditating and thinking through the Word of God? Are you? Yes? Great. No? Why? Cheryl complimented me the other night. I I may even have shared this on Wednesday because I'm just... No, because it was Wednesday night that she complimented me. So I don't think I've told you all this. I'll share this because it made me feel so good. (laughs) 
we were talking after the fact and talking just about teaching and, and some things that she had heard and we were just kind of downloading and, and, and she said, you know, you've really been sanctified. And I went, tell me more. <laughs> she said in the last 13 years, ironically enough, she said, you have changed pretty dramatically in our house and with our kids and toward me. Tell me more. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, I, I mean, there's only one thing. There's only one thing that changed in my life 13 years ago. I started teaching verse by verse through the Bible, which required me to be verse by verse through the Bible every single day. And I said, you know, honey, thank you so much. I disagree. I think she's completely wrong. Thank you so much, but if, if it takes 13 years of constant Bible study to move me that far in my life, what happens to the person who comes and shows up and gets it once a week? How much sanctification is taking place in the person's life who shows up listening to the Bible once a month? Or who only dust the Bible off to pick it up on their way out the door to church. And that's not a judgment on you, but I'll tell you what. For me to be a changed man required a lot of the Logos Ho Christos. And I'm, I'm not even close to there. Because what Cheryl doesn't see is what's going on in here. You know, she sees me break, making breakfast for the children. And I, I see me going, don't have time for this. Eat your food. <laughs> My point is simply this. The Word of Christ needs to dwell in the commons. To be our common language. To be our common understanding. To be our, our common meal together. That we are always taking in the Word of Christ. I, I can't emphasize this enough. What was, Listen to this. Okay. It, you might say, I get it, Rick. You want us to study the Bible. Fine. Uh, but I've got a peace in my life. I'm fine. Some people say, I know you church people like to open the Bible and study. I, that's okay. But I've got a peace. I get in my 69 VW bus and I go down to the beach. And I light up. And I got peace. <laughs> You know, I got peace. Ever since the new cannabis laws passed in Washington, I got peace. And Doritos. You know, I'm just at peace, man. Listen, when, when people say, I've got peace, I don't really need the Word of God, I think, okay, Jonah, that's your choice, fish food. If that's the way you want to be, what was the last thing that Jonah said? Jonah chapter 4, verse 8, this man who supposedly had peace, who was doing his own thing, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. The last words of the prophet Jonah. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? My friends, we need the Word of Christ to dwell richly in the commons. I need it tomorrow. And I need it the day after that. And I need it the day after that. And then we'll gather back again on Wednesday night and we will open the Logos Ho Christos and we will be in the Word of Christ. And I need it. And I'll tell you what, if one person showed up, I would do it because I need it. I've been asked, you know, Rick, if, if things happen in the bridge and, and goes all sorts of different directions, we have different programs, different teachings, different things happening, different nights, and, and, and Wednesday nights begin to dwindle, is there ever a time where you might not do Wednesday nights? No. Why? Because I need it. And I think we do. To have the Logos Christos. And note this. He says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. With all wisdom. Why? Because in the word of Christ is where all wisdom is hidden. 
In Christ Jesus. In fact, didn't Paul say that? Colossians 2.3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. By the way, when you read verse 16, there are some who believe that Paul is giving a one-verse description of the common worship of the early church. Listen to how it sums it all up. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, plural, the commons, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, plural, to God. It's church. Verse 16 is a worship service. And you can apply it to the early church. Man, where the word of Christ was declared, where we teach and admonish one another with His wisdom, where we share the ruling peace of Christ, the residing word of Christ, and finally, number three, the rejoicing worship of Christ. The rejoicing worship. Again, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Oh, brothers and sisters, by the third person passive imperative, worship in song is not forced, but it is to be received and to be returned with great celebration. Now, listen up. What if I don't like the style the worship team is going? What if I don't like the change? What if I think Rick was a far better worship leader than Rachel is? What if I think, thank goodness for Rachel, because Rick stunk? What if, what if the change is uncomfortable? Worship in churches is one of the funniest things in the way people react and respond. I, I think I've told you, I served in a church where we added for the first time, this was many, many years ago, added drums to the worship team. All those tribal primal sounds. And we added the drums, but, but on the corner of the stage. We just got them onto the stage. And people complained, but okay. And the only way they could ultimately get the drums to the center of the stage is over a period, I'm not kidding, this actually happened, over a period of about a year, every Sunday they moved the drums an inch. (laughs) Until finally they were centered and the band's playing and everybody's rocking, you know, and the 72-year-olds are going, yeah, you know. People in worship... We, we, we think that it's for us. And we forget it has nothing to do with us. Well, I didn't like it this morning. I don't care. Did God? Did the Lord receive our praise? I didn't know any of the words of the songs. Rachel keeps throwing out these new songs. Was the Lord honored in it? Was my heart right before Him? I confess to you, when Rachel first began, the first couple of Sundays, I fought being in constant evaluation mode. Not because of her, but because I'm a musician. So I'm thinking, how is this different? And man, that vibe's not the same. Oh, I hope we can... You know, and and I, I started to realize pretty fast, I'm not worshiping. That's not worship. What is our worship team doing up here? Performing for us? Entertaining us? No! They are simply trying to help the door open a little wider that we might come into the presence of God. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, the peace rule, and do so with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, not evaluation, in our hearts to God. What if I can't sing? Do you know how many times David writes, make a joyful noise unto the Lord in the Psalms? Do you know how many times? I looked it up. Seven. Seven times make a joyful noise. That's complete noise. So you sing. I can't sing. doesn't matter. God's not listening for your voice. He's listening for your heart. 
He invites us to join again in the commons, in common worship. Psalm 150 is one of my favorite ones. For those of you who have a little trouble with too much guitar or too much drums, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Because, see, God is glorified. He is great. He is awesome. There's nothing common about God. But then he writes... Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing and stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, honestly, nobody here at the bridge ever complains about worship styles. I never get comments about volume or overall experience in worship here. But, isn't it interesting? What Paul talks about here, he covers his bases with all three variations of worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All synonymous, but all unique in terms of words. Psalms are psalmos from the word solo, which means to pluck, strike, play as on a harp or a lyre or a Gibson Les Paul. It's instrumental worship. I grew up in a church that was a cappella. I loved it. I loved the a cappella singing of the hymns and, and, and everybody sang because if you didn't sing, it was terrible. And so y'all sang. And that was great. But there was a mentality in that church that a cappella was the only way to worship correctly. And they would point to this verse singing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing. You're not supposed to have a band. You're not supposed to have instruments. That gets in the way until I ran across the fact that solo means to pluck. And I have yet to find anyone who knows how to pluck their voice. (laughs) It's instrumental worship. These are the songs David wrote, mostly with the lyre. He would write those songs with instrumental praise. There's instrumental language throughout the Psalms. Selah, an instrumental pause, and other musical notations and indicators throughout this because it's instrumental praise. Paul says, do it. Do it. Psalms, hymns, hymnos. And it's a sacred song that praises or extols the divine deity. Hymnos. So we have instrumental worship and we have intelligent worship. There is one to whom we are offering all our worship. What I love about the old hymns, and even some of the new hymns, you know, the Gettys write some phenomenal new hymns. What I love about the hymn mindset in worship is it is intelligent. It's doctrinal. It teaches. Doesn't Paul say that? That we are teaching and admonishing one another with hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs? So part of the worship is a teaching environment here, gang. And there are those, and it breaks my heart, but there are those who wait to come in until the teaching time because worship's really not their thing and you're missing half the teaching of the church. Because worship is teaching. It's intelligent praise. Psalms, hymns, and then spiritual songs. And this is different. This is beautiful. The words are two words. Pneumatikos hode. Hode is songs. You know pneumatikos, spirituals. That is of the Spirit. Spiritual songs in our worship are songs that come from the Spirit. I would call that intimate worship. Intellectual worship, the hymns, instrumental worship, the psalms, and intimate worship, the spiritual songs. And we are told to allow all of that in our worship. Not one or the other, but all. Worship, man, it, it moves us, it, it, it moves the Spirit among us, it draws us together in a way that no other music can touch. I was driving over here on Wednesday night, I'm almost done, but i got to share this. Driving here on Wednesday night, and I just picked up uh, another Fountains of Wayne album. They're my new favorite band. I'm not suggesting that they be your favorite band, but... They're, they're called Power Pop. They really rock. And they, they broke up actually a couple years ago, but their stuff came out mostly in the first decade of the 2000s. And I'm, I'm driving over here, and, and this is one of their older albums that I got. I'm listening to the song. It's called Someone to Love. And it's just, you know, I'm driving <laughs> over, just having a great time. And I know someone from the church might drive by and go, look at him worshiping God. <laughs> and I'm just rocking out. 
And I, I turned it off, and my, my brother's the one who turned me on to Fountains of Wayne, and I texted Ron right, right before I came in here, and I said, good golly, Miss Molly, these guys are amazing. And Ron texts you back, yeah, I know, aren't they? You know, we're, and, and, then, and then I closed it off, and I came in here, and I sat down, and Rachel started playing. And she is nothing like Fountains of Wayne. She does not rock. It's not power pop. We don't have the heavy guitar chords. On occasion we do, Luke, and I appreciate that. But <laughs> something happened. And immediately I realized I went from the presence of fun to the presence of God. And I thought in that moment, I would so rather sit in here on a Wednesday night and worship God than hear the coolest rock song. Well, that stuff will charge me up, but this stuff feeds and encourages and builds up. And, and I, it just, the, the contrast was so extreme, it was wonderful. And God taught me something and reminded me how powerful and important and precious worship unto Him truly is. We are talking about worship in the commons as much as we are talking about Christ in the commons and the Word in the commons, just among us in the common life. And listen, even Jesus, even Jesus says He loves to worship in the commons. Psalm 22, verse 22, Jesus speaking, says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You know, that's that's something you can't do on your own. You cannot worship in the midst of the assembly by yourself unless you have a mental disorder. (laughs) Is worship optional to you? Do you use worship? And I I, want to say this gently because I do not want anybody to feel judged. That's not the point. But do you use worship as the buffer between the foyer and the teaching? Oh, worship started. Yeah, I know, but I haven't got my coffee yet. Oh, worship started. Oh, that's cool. We'll, we'll roll in. I, I don't, I'm not sitting in judgment. But if worship is little more than an opening act, a warm-up before the teaching, if we are trailing in, or worse, worse, if we avoid corporate worship altogether, we are in what I would call triune denial. Triune denial. What do you mean? We deny the Father's offer of the mantle of His praise. We deny, secondly, Christ as the central focus of our gathering. And thirdly, we deny each other the admonishment and encouragement, even the teaching of the Holy Spirit in common worship. The Bible does not teach worship as optional. The Bible teaches worship as central to the Christ-centered life. Corporate worship. I worship in my car on the way to church so I don't have to listen to the way they do music. That's not corporate worship. The point of worship is not our personal tastes. It is the rejoicing worship of Christ. It is the, think about this, the single moment when we step out of our common life and into the commons of corporate praise and the presence of God and His assembled saints. Common people just like me, day-to-day living just like me, but we come together and something great happens. Something beyond us takes place. Something marvelous And so I do want to encourage everybody, move your clock forward 10 minutes. That's My clock at home is 10 minutes fast because I know that's the only way I'll get out the door. To be in the sanctuary, ready to lift up songs of praise at the very downbeat of our worship. Make it your intention not to miss a single note. Why? Because God is here. And He is the one who we praise. The ruling peace of Christ. Let it happen. The residing Word of Christ. Let it be among us. The rejoicing worship of Christ. And in all, actually I guess there's one more, and that is simply the righteous name of Christ. Verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That is the Christocentric life. That's the life wherein Jesus Christ is all and is in all. And and if you skip down to the very end of the chapter, look at verse 23. Whatever you do, 
Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The Lord Christ. And that makes for the most uncommon life. Father, we are a common people. And most of us, Lord, truly will never have a name for ourselves in this world. Will not make a splash on the international or the global scene. Most of us, Father, are not going to be remembered in the halls of history for the great things that we accomplished. Most of us will not be in the hundred names of Christians you all should know. Most of us, Father, are not going to be named hardly at all outside of our friends and family and our local fellowship. Most of us are simply going to live the common life. But Lord Jesus, we invite You into that life. And we open our arms and say, let it be done to us. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell among us. Let the rejoicing worship of Christ be at the heart of our fellowship. As Father, we focus on the right name. The name of Jesus Christ. May we, Father, not make a name for ourselves. May we declare the name of Jesus. Lord, if there is a place in this fellowship where there is not peace, we pray peace would come. Father, if there is an attitude in our fellowship that only receives the Word on occasion as a snack rather than the full meal You've offered, let the Word come. Father, if our worship is more self-centered and not Christ-centered, let the worship come. We receive You now as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand up together.